Welcome to The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. In this episode, we're going to talk about a number of different things, career transitions, private equity, how to make an investment decision. And I've got a wonderful guest who most of you will recognize from the NFL. His name is Steve Young. And he's here today to talk maybe a little bit of football, but also to talk mostly about his private equity career, how he made that jump, and how he thinks about investing. Steve is a partner, the chairman, and co-founder of HGGC. He serves as chairman of the board of three HGGC portfolio companies, IDERA, Integrity, and AutoAlert. Before co-founding HGGC, Steve's professional football career spanned more than 15 years in the NFL, primarily with the San Francisco 49ers. When he retired, Steve was the highest-rated quarterback in NFL history and has the distinction of being the only signal caller in league history to win four consecutive NFL passing titles. With that, let's get to the interview. Steve Young. Welcome to the Important Part Podcast. I should get this out of the way first. No relation. I know my name is Liz Young. There's no relation between us. Oh, we have we not checked 23andMe. We don't know. We don't, we're not sure. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Well, and the other thing is when we booked this, we didn't know that the 49ers were going to be in the Super Bowl. Right. So this is this is lucky. This is really special. But I do have to tell you, I am born and raised in Wisconsin. I live in New York now, but obviously uh, I was branded a Packer fan as an infant. So if you yeah. would like to offer your condolences to Packer fans <laughs> everywhere right. for the fifth time we lost to the Niners in the postseason, I'm getting less hopeful that we'll ever get past them in the postseason. But if you'd like to offer your condolences, I'm happy to give you the airtime to do so. Well, uh, they're just they're getting paid back for them mauling me and having the truck that the tire marks on my face when I play the backers a few times. So okay, oh, so so we should be sorry. We We're should, owed, yeah. Okay, I wore my green sweater today on purpose nice too. To see too. Good for you. Um, so anyway, I guess good luck to your Niners. You know, it it always makes the pain a little bit easier to bear when the team that we lost to actually wins it all. So I suppose good luck to the Niners in the Super Bowl. But we are. I want to focus on your career now for a lot of the podcast and you're in private equity now, which we'll get into a little bit later. But one of the things that I really want to cover first is I want you to tell our listeners and and just talk about the transition that you made, because there are probably people listening to this who either want to make a career transition, have made a career transition and perhaps are struggling with it. And I'd love to hear from you how you made that leap from the NFL, from a football career into the business world. It's actually something I have a lot of passion around. I have watched myself and others uh, in their transitions. And um, and I think transition in general, because uh, it's funny about other athletes that I know that played high school football. And they think back to when they, you know, the last time they were able to play football was high school. And they look at it the same way I look at it when I was 38 years old and retired, that it's a death. It's a death of a dream. It's a dream that you wanted to play a game for a living, and uh, and and those dreams, uh, when they die, no matter when it is, it's painful. 
And I think particularly when you've played for, you know, 30 years of your life and, and built a career and you're actually one of the better ones in the world, that's where the expertise and you're like, so you retire and the next day you wake up and you realize that what you were really good or great at is gone. Mm-hmm. And then you look out in the future, what else am I even, you know, I'm not great at anything else. What am I even good at? And that's scary mm-hmm. because uh, what it makes you feel like is, well, I just want to climb back up the mountain, uh, the cliff and, and do that again. Well, that's over. Can't do that. And so the transition, I always tell people it's a death and you have to treat it that way. You have to mourn it. You have to recognize it. You have to be vulnerable enough to realize that it's over. I need to start over mm-hmm. and I need to start over in a humble way. Take a look at the other assets I have in my life and realize, okay, what, what do I have a passion for? What can I get done? My dad always said, look, you need a dream. That's 1% chance. And you need a plan. That's 80% chance. You need them both. And in that moment, I think I just, you know, I started thinking about what the plan is because I already had a dream come true. Okay. What's an 80% chance plan. And I'd gone to law school and had that in my pocket. I had Brian Maxwell that started Power Bar. He was a meal replacement for marathoners out of Berkeley, California. And because I was single back then, I was eating a lot of Power Bars for my meal replacement. That's how I, <laughs> how I ate. And so I got kind of famous in the Bay Area and we met, built a relationship and he asked me to join the board. And I'd never been on a board. I thought I'd be a lawyer. I didn't know much about boards or business. And on the board was Larry Sonsini and Warren Hellman who are icons. Like if you couldn't pick two other icons of investors and lawyers in Silicon Valley and those two. And uh, a buddy of mine had a, in college at BYU during the mid nineties when the URLs were still open with the government, you could go in and he was messing around with them and he'd figure out an algorithm to put a geographic boundary around an internet search. So that in 1998, you know, the internet was like the wild west. You put in hammer, and Palo Alto, and you get a sickle from USSR. I mean, none of it made sense. But with this enablement, you could put in Hammer, Palo Alto, and get a local Ace Hardware store. And so that was revolutionary. So I took that to those guys on the board, said, look, my buddy's doing this. What do you think? He says, you can start a business for retailers where you can service them that have brick and mortar stores, get drop shipped that day, come down, pick it up at the store, and have their brick and mortar stores be their, you know, their distribution points. And, uh, and everyone was worried about Amazon, even in 1998. Mm. So we started a business and, and out of that board support at Power Bar and starting a business while I was still playing, that was the thing that kicked me from becoming a lawyer to starting into business. And so, and so we built the business with my long-term partner, Rich Lawson, who's still back here on the other side of the, that's his office over there 25 years later. Wow. And he was the CEO, I was the chairman, and we built a business called found.com. And our investors were Excel KKR at the time and Bain Capital. So out of that experience, um, Bain Capital was, uh, Bob Gay was a dear friend of mine, did a lot of philanthropy together. And he's the one that kind of sponsored me to transition from football to business to private equity. So there was overlap you hadn't quite finished the football career before you started the business career. What would you say about, you know, I mean, obviously doing something like that, it it takes commitment, it takes perseverance, it takes agility, right? You were used to physical agility and now you needed mental agility. What's the mindset that you need in that moment? Is it confidence? Is it is it almost some level of naivete? 
what is it, blind optimism in order to make that that successful move? Yeah, it is vulnerability. Mm. It's the ability to take it in like it's over. I'm the bottom of the cliff. I'm in a bag of bones. And what am I good at? And what are my assets? And be honest with yourself and then say, look, I know that I'm going to have to go back to work, meaning, you know, back to grinding out some expertise. I'm not an expert at anything. And so talk about expertise in business. I was an expert. And so I just surrounded myself with really, really good people and tried to learn as fast as I could. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I still, even to this day, after all these years, I've been in private equity longer than I played football. It's crazy. Um, I still have some insecurity about it. You know, I cut the line. I didn't go to banking. I wasn't a consultant for years. I didn't get an MBA. I was a law degree. So in that way, I'm still making up for it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just, I think that vulnerability is still around. And I think it's important to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, it can be, it can be a driver and it's part of the human experience, right? So in private equity now, I mean, what drew you to that place or was it sort of by accident, you mentioned starting a company and then obviously there were some introductions to people who were already in private equity. But how steep was that learning curve to get into the space? It's a high functioning, intense, competitive, and that's where it reminded me of my previous life. Mm-hmm. In some ways, they were very relevant. Like the challenge, and no, it, was a, it wasn't as much of a physical challenge. Like you said, it was more of a intellectual challenge. But it was still competitive and and high functioning and felt like the locker room. A lot of it did feel, I mean, uh, resonant with me, but part that really didn't was all the expertise that comes with it mm-hmm. and the modeling and the business financial engineering and things that I never studied. Mm-hmm. And so that was the hardest part was trying to kind of essentially go back to school, you know, cause I could say, Oh, I can, I can, I can do this. I can do that. But the, the fundamental parts of the business, um, I had to go back and kind of jump in head first. Right. And I think, you know, luckily there was a lot of things I could do uh, on the top of funnel, kind of deal-making, negotiations. Those are the things that I could, you know, I had a lot of skill doing that. And then the underwriting is where I really needed to work. So I, I, I made a kind of a 10-year plan to try to get to be an underwriter. But the other parts of the business were very resonant with me right away. Well, and the reason I'm I'm taking that angle and asking that question is because we've got at SoFi, we have a lot of beginner investors and and people that maybe even they want to invest or they want to start, but they're intimidated by it. And there's this huge learning curve because maybe they've never worked in finance and they don't have that accessible to them and they don't have those kinds of resources. So I just I want I wanted to show an example of somebody who really came from a completely different place, no skill set to speak of in that area and had to learn it you know, it doesn't happen overnight. And the 10-year plan to become a better underwriter is, I think that's incredible. And that just goes to show you're forever a student, no matter what's happening. Yeah. And I think investing, a lot of people who are neophyte investors think that there's a magic language. There is a language to it. And because you're not, you don't feel like you're, you belong, you feel in in an imposter syndrome, right? It's like, I, I want to be an associate, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not that. And so then you end up kind of banking on others to give you that expertise. I just make sure that you bank on people that really know what they're doing. Right. Because that's the danger. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And, you know, I mean, that's 
that still runs rampant through the investment industry. If if you didn't go to Penn, right, you didn't go to Wharton, you don't have that Ivy League MBA, it does feel like you're kind of behind or you don't have the right pedigree. And, and I mean, I'm, a, I'm an example of that, too. I went to a state school in Wisconsin, and then I got my MBA from Marquette, right? I didn't come up through an internship at Goldman Sachs. So I've certainly had some of that experience, even though I've been in this industry my entire career, I've had that experience of, you know, I don't have, I didn't check all the boxes that some people have checked. And and I'll tell you, it, it just takes more grit. It takes more effort. It takes that that real fire inside you to right. learn it and get the hands-on experience. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, there's too much of that where the pedigree, like the expertise can be gotten, I think, you know, at an online school. It's just a matter of you ingesting the information. Like financial literacy, there's no secret to it. You just got to put the work in and then expose yourself to whatever job that you want, whatever job and financial uh, services that you want. You, you just got to, you got to dive in and hang around it. You got to be around people that are experts in it and then just, how did you get there? Oh, I went to, like you said, I went to Harvard. Then I went to, you know, Goldman Sachs. It's like, okay, I'm not going to be able to do that. But what what's the information that you got? Where can I get close to it? And don't be afraid of it. I mean, I think that a lot of people feel like this imposter syndrome. Yeah. I mean, it's important to recognize where you're, what you, you know, what you're good and what you're not good at. But then let's, don't let anybody tell you you can't go get it and, and get it in a way that can give you the expertise to, to be really good at it. I mean, right. I, I just, that's the other part of it. I, I would never want to hold people. I think people hold themselves back too much, but yet also recognize that there's no shortcut. There's really, I, I tell quarterbacks now, even today, if you want to be a great quarterback, you got to go to school. You got to own the data. You got to study. You got to memorize. Yeah. That's it. That's the, so no matter what job it is, it's a grind. And if you're willing, and you're willing to grind, then, you know, you got a shot at it. Yep. Well, the, the Grammys were last night. We're recording this the day after the Grammys. And Jay-Z said something along the lines of just keep showing up, keep showing up until you get there, right? Keep showing up until you get the accolades that you deserve. And I think that goes for a lot of different things. But let's let's shift into the private equity space a little bit. And and this is an, a, a well-timed episode about private equity because SoFi actually just announced that we're making alternatives available to members on our platform. And that's wow. a huge deal because... It used to be that you couldn't get alternatives as an investor unless you were a high net worth investor right. or unless you were an institution. So to make this available to individual investors and, and what are considered retail investors is a big deal. And, and that's the industry having come a long way in the last 10 to 15 years. So let's first just do a quick explainer on how private equity is different from public market investing, right? What's the hands-on nature of it that's different than me going out and just buying a handful of stocks? So, of course, public securities, um, easily tradable. I mean, there's apps everywhere that you can just jump on and get in, get in the mix. Mm -hmm. And a lot that you can do, private equity essentially is long-term capital, but it's not generational capital. It's kind of tenure capital. And the return should be, you know, if you think about S&P at eight or 10, Theoretically, private equity should return you about 20, right? I mean, it should be a significant jump, but then you, that money's tied up in private equity funds that have 10-year lives. And in private equity, what we're doing is, in middle market private equity like I'm in, we're, we're buying good businesses, helping them get to be great, and then selling those businesses. So it's like the real estate market in many ways. You know, it's like it's complex, 
and difficult, but it's fundamentally, you know, just about building good businesses. And then the returns that you get in private equity or alternatives you talk about, and that would be hedge funds or venture. Um, just know that that money is going to, you, you know, public securities can get it out in a minute where private equity, that, that's not as liquid, but that's why the returns should be better. Yeah. So, so when you're evaluating it, because this, this is the really interesting part to me, you're buying an, an early stage company, not quite as early as venture capital, but an early stage company where there should be a huge growth runway. And, and I think people can apply this to the public markets too. Let's say you're buying a small cap stock or a mid cap stock. There should be a huge growth runway, but the company hasn't quite achieved it yet. So that doesn't necessarily mean that there are things wrong with the company, but maybe that it hasn't figured out how to scale it yet. It hasn't quite figured out what the right size is yet. Maybe it's in the wrong product lines. Maybe it's got some drags cost-wise. How do you evaluate at that stage, at, a, at an early stage, whether or not the risk-reward of this investment is attractive, knowing that it's going to be such a long time horizon, but there's obviously more risk in it than there would be in a large cap, very well-established company right. that's got it all right. figured out. So what's the evaluation process? Evaluation starts with the people, leadership. I've always said, give me a, you know, a B business at an A team and I'll beat the A company with the B leadership. It's really, really important. So I underwrite the people first. Uh, are they capable of doing exactly what they say they can do and what you think they need to do? Um, once we have that, obviously you got to look at the business and underwrite a business that can grow and it has fundamentals, but yet has, you know, m missing pieces. Well, you know, they have to build out finance, they have to build out, uh, go to market. There's, uh, they've, they've grown to capacity of their ability to, you know, of, of their expertise. Some people, you know, a lot of folks are founders and management teams that, that have kind of reached the limit of their capabilities. There's tech debt everywhere, right? So you've got to go in and build better systems, better widgets. Um, and so all of it is a part of underwriting, figure out whether it's something that, you know, you want to get involved in. But I always say people first, business second, and then, you know, kind of the old, I'm a Bain Capital Heritage kind of business where, you know, kind of very intense uh, underwriting. But what we've done at HCGC is add a layer of what I call art on top of it, where we don't do anything other than partner with people across the table. So we'll underwrite, we'll do the science, but what we really thrive at is the art, unique, bespoke nature of the business that you, that we're looking at, who's running it, what's the legacy, what, are the, what do they care about? And we don't lay a template of, systemic, systematic triggers that you want to like, so give me your business. I got all these things I want to do to it. It's really kind mm -hmm. of bespoke and unique to each individual business, but the underwriting really starts with the people. So you mentioned a, a 10 year time horizon, let's say eight to 10 years, meaning the money's locked up. That's, that's how long it generally takes to make good on what the, the growth is that you're expecting out of a company. Investors today in public markets, partially because there's so much information available, partially because of how the market has moved over the last year, year and a half, there's just been huge returns in certain stocks that our expectations, I think, are a little bit out of whack. But how do you stay patient over a 10-year period? Because any investor today who's entering the stock market for the first time, let's say I buy a stock today and it's down 5% in the next month hard for them to stay patient over a 30-day period, let alone right. a 10-year period. So so walk us through a lesson in patience. So in investors, you have to stand in the shoes. In other words, 
like if you're in public security, stand in those shoes, get in and out or not, be a long-term investor, whatever you want, you know, decide who you, what shoes you're going to wear, right? And then all the great investors, Warren Buffett, like whatever you're going to be, don't change, don't, don't change me something else. Like figure out what you really want, what's your basic philosophy and then get into it. Now, private equity, you have to wear those shoes. You have to say, I recognize the returns I'm looking for. I'm okay with locking this money up. I trust this firm or I, I, maybe there's going to be some fund of funds for, for private equity and, and, and for SoFi, but you know, I trust that underwriting. I trust their expertise to go build businesses. And I, in many ways, I'm going to watch and wear that pa those patient shoes. And, and I, I think you have to decide I, I can do that. I'm, I'm built that way. I understand it. And then sometimes you just have to develop the patience. Like, look, I've, I'm not used to this. I'm not, I've not invested in alternatives before. And then recognize that, you know, you might get into it and go, I, I can't wait. I, I gotta get in and out. We've, I've had other athletes that have gotten into private equity that just can't take it. Mm. They're like, I, I can't wait this long. This is insanity. And so yeah. I understand that. But I think as an investor, be the vulnerable to recognize what kind of investor you are and what, and what's your expertise? You know, who do you want to bank on? Because even if you're in and out in a day, you're still banking on somebody to make a difference, you know? Yeah. And I just think that have the ownership of your investing philosophy. You own it. You be it rather than kind of farm it out to somebody else. Uh, and if you are going to farm it out to somebody else, make sure that they resonate with how you feel about investing. And I think that's a good lesson because it's it's about what your risk tolerance is, not what your neighbor's risk tolerance is. And the stock that you heard that somebody tell a story about where they bought it and it's up 150 percent, maybe that stock is not something that you have the stomach for. And we all hear those stories. The success stories are easy to tell. And right. oh, we yeah. all hear those now, stories. Everyone chases them and invests in them mm -hmm. and recognizing that they don't realize that the odds, the risks are so high chasing a huge success story. And that's why my history investing is a barbell, right? Triple A insured bonds on one side, my private equity firm on the other side. And that's, mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about anything else because I've got it kind of refenced and I can take the risks on the right side and, and de-risk on the left side. But early in my career, I chased that big business that was going to make the difference. You know, I invest all kinds of money ch and chasing smart investors, but they weren't inside their fund. I would, I would, there would be investment professionals in private equity, but they were investing outside of their fund and, and they'd be collecting some money. I'm like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And then I learned over a few years, it's like, no, 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 I need to invest through a fund. I want to, I want it underwritten. I want it underwritten in a very substantial way. And that's how I'm going to invest. So I had to learn that lesson. Yeah. So then on the flip side of patience, how do you decide when something failed? How do you decide when it, it's not going to work out the way that you'd originally planned. And, and obviously divesting from the public markets is different. You just sell the stock. Private equity is probably a little more difficult to get out of. But what's the what's the sell discipline? I can tell you I've matured a lot in this mm -hmm. through failures. In private equity, you should be able to underwrite a business that you can return the capital for sure. Like a loss is, you know, not a good thing. And so mm -hmm. I've had that. And so some of the yeoman's work in private equity is getting something back to par, you know, something that slid and struggled and finding out over a couple of years, okay, what's the plan to get this thing back? And you talk about tough work. And in our shop, that work is the most valuable work because that's the work that's the hardest. 
getting on top of a rocket ship, which we've had plenty of those too. Um, there's still plenty of work to do, but, you know, growing businesses, uh, iterating and trying to figure out how to extend their growth or doing the else is not as difficult as trying to turn around something. And we're not turnaround people, but I can tell you that having the discipline and the vulnerability again, hmm. sit in the boardroom, look at it, chew on it, and then recognize, look, this is not working and, and own it. Yeah. And then once you do that, let's, and then gather people, let's make a plan. What can we do? And I think that that's the discipline that I've seen over the years that makes the difference rather than promise no vulnerability. Oh, well, we'll be fine. Just keep going. Bat in the hat. You know, I, I, I just, I don't, I, I think that the vulnerability, the same thing that I keep talking about, I look about vulnerability, even in my job, my previous life, you know, to recognize when you're, people tell you you're great and you watch the film, you're like, eh, not so much, you know, <laughs> like, like it's, I think it's, an, I, I guess that's the theme of this whole podcast, Liz, is that, you know, maintain that vulnerability up and down the cycles because it's the thing that's going to avail you the truth of the situation so you can go do something about it. Right. And be willing to change your mind. I mean, people get so married to their positions. I'm, I'm a big iterator, you know? Yeah. You know, and, and being able to, you know, go all in on something like, this is, this is the way to do it. And then recognize, oops, that's not, that actually didn't work as well as I thought. Yeah. Well, Anthony Noto would be mad at me if I didn't mention that one of our biggest values at SoFi is learn, iterate, innovate. So there, I, I did it. We, well, we are he, big iterators I, I've learned here. a lot from him. He's a mentor for me. <laughs> uh, he worked at the NFL, as you know, mm-hmm. and uh, his son, Anthony Jr. And my daughter, Summer, went to a, a dance together in high school. So we've worked. Oh, sweet. Yeah. yeah. Cute. Okay. So when we think about building a portfolio, and this is something that I talk to investors about all the time, it's not just picking stocks that you like. It's not just picking investments that you believe in. You have to also think about how they all work together and what the combination of them means as a whole. Now, at a private equity firm, you obviously have a portfolio of companies. How do you think about which companies you either need to add to the portfolio or how they're going to offset each other, the timelines of it? How does that recipe get made? (laughs) Remember the constituents around the table. You've got your investors, your LPs. You have the market that is super competitive. It's not like a menu. You just go Mm -hmm. pick whatever you want. Like it's super competitive. So portfolio construction is what you're talking about, is, Mm -hmm. is the art. Because you need to construct a portfolio that can grow and do the things that you're telling your investors that it can do. And it needs to resonate or else they won't come back. Like you have to be referenceable to them. Then going out and competing on the other side, trying to find the businesses that would fit that perfectly. And it's never perfect. And you have to, again, the athleticism in private equity is intense. And I don't necessarily mean physical athleticism, but it's, you know, an emotional athleticism that I think is vital so that you can recognize that, you know, something might not be perfect, but yet it fits and then we'll, we'll, we'll make it resonate. We'll create the resonance. We'll, we'll build the resonance with our investors because it's the way forward. So it's like, it's a constant, uh, challenge that I think it's a lot of fun. Actually, it's, the biggest challenges are the most fun because that reminds me of my previous life, like pouring yourself into something, trying to find the answer through the calculus, advanced calculus of, of all the different constituents and the market itself 
and the people that you have, the expertise you have in your system, it's an, it's a constant, challenging, energizing piece of art. Do you try to avoid concentrated positions? And I'm asking that because we just finished a year where as long as you held the Magnificent Seven stocks, you did great. If you held anything else, you didn't do very well. Right. So, you know, we've been, we've been taught for the last year or so that concentrated positions work. There are some private equity firms that are very concentrated, very clear. All we do is vertical market software. That's it. So it's going to be very concentrated because they're telling everybody that's all we're doing. Um, the challenge for us is that we do software, we do financial services, we do business services, and a little bit of consumer. So the challenge gets even greater for, you know, for me because uh, it's not concentrated and there is more flexibility. And in that flexibility is complication. And so, look, concentration, I think that we have to be careful that we, we, we don't do too much of one thing. Mm-hmm. And we do need to be able, if we tell people we're going to do a different, do different things, we got to do them. And so that's complicated for us. And so we, we, in that portfolio of construction. And so do you pass on another great financial services insurance deal because you've done two or three of them? Or do you go in heavy because you know this is a great business? And that, that's the art of it all. That's a tough question to answer. Yeah. Okay, so to to wrap up this part of the interview, and then we're going to do what's called the hot minute. It's like a lightning round, real short questions, All right. short answers. It, when we think about alternatives, you mentioned already your personal investments. You've got your private equity fund on one side, and then you've got AAA-rated bonds on the other side. When we think about alternatives for investors in general, how do you see it in an overall portfolio? And I'm not asking you to give a prescription. Obviously, everybody's situation is different, but I think a lot of investors today, now that alternatives are available to them, struggle with where to put it and where to where to take the capital from in order to fund an alternative investment. Alternatives are different. Don't treat it like it's just another pocket and just throw some money in there. Mm-hmm. You need to understand it. Spend the time. Uh, alternatives do some outsized returns. And uh, I think that's why people are excited about them. And this is a market right now where there's a lot of opportunity. So I just, I, I, I'd hate people to get into alternatives not knowing what it is. I think that you've got to get educated in it. Make sure that you understand the hold periods, uh, what the expectations are, how you can get it out. And uh, once you do that, I think alternatives can be a nice part of the balance of a portfolio. I, I think it's smart. And alternatives can be, remember, you can be in hedge funds, you can be uh, in venture, you can be late stage, you can be middle market private equity, you can be bulge bracket private equity. Like there's a lot of alternatives. So you have to kind of understand what you want to do there because uh, return profiles are different. The whole period's a little bit different. You know, if someone said to me, hey, Steve, how do you feel about hedge funds? I'm like, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, as an investor, as a guy that's been around for 25 years, like I'm not an expert in that. So, you know, I'd have to get some expertise, expert advice. So just alternatives are not just a, oh yeah, I can't wait. Let's just pour some money into it. Make sure you you, you do some homework. Right. Well, and, and the buzzwords around them are, well, they're an uncorrelated asset class. So sometimes people take that as okay, so it diversifies, therefore my risk is lower. And that's not, that is not the case with a lot of alternatives. So it definitely does pay to do your homework. All right, so we'll do a hot minute. I've got two questions. You can give a one-word answer. You can give a five-word answer, whatever you'd like. Okay. First question, highest conviction investing theme for the next five years? Quality. Quality. Quality, yeah. I mean, I refuse... I've lived now through huge cycles of technology. And, you know, one was four or five years early on before the bust. 
And then next one was 2008 to 20, like it was 15 years. So those are great parades and there's a lot of money to be made, but I refuse to turn on quality. Like I'm just going to find really quality business, profitably quality business with great management teams. And that's where I'm going to live. And it's just a good place to live. That's just who I am. Yeah. Don't, don't chase the hot dot just because it's hot. Okay. Second question. What's one business resource that you can't live without? That could be a book or a podcast or a some kind of publication, maybe a mentor? For me, you know, in private equity, you need third-party expertise. You need great, you know, accountant, the great lawyer, the great, like, you know, there's just people that help on the outside that you just have to have. And that we have a lot of expertise in our business, but just to know that you have really good third-party experts, for me, are things that, you know, I'd love it to be a podcast, but I, when things are turning south, I can't turn to the podcast. I got to turn to someone who really knows what they're doing. So mm -hmm. I think it's those experts and those third parties. Okay. Good answer. All right. That's it. That's a wrap. Thank you, Steve. For well, your time. I got to tell you, I, you know, I don't know how exciting that was, but uh, everyone always wants to talk to me about football. It's the most business concentrated conversation I've probably ever had in my life. So I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, that's great. It Good. Well, it was unique nonetheless, it was right? Really and great. and this great. is where we're recording this a week before the Super Bowl. Super Bowl. Right? I love the her. the I Monday love her. before the Super Bowl. And I forced myself to not talk about football the whole time, even though I am a sad Packer fan. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I loved I love talking about my expertise I've built over 20 years. It's great. Well, I think I can confidently say that was the biggest celebrity that I've had on the podcast so far and so approachable, such a wonderful conversationalist and so excited to talk about business. I really, really enjoyed that. We started the conversation by talking about transitions. And if there's anybody that was listening who either has recently made a career transition or is hoping to, I hope that you took away some good nuggets of knowledge. One of the big things that came out of this conversation was about career transitions and about how to be patient and deliberate as an investor. And a theme that kept coming out about both of those things was vulnerability. Letting yourself be vulnerable, being honest with yourself, knowing what you don't know, and accepting the fact that your learning curve is going to be steep, whether it's in making a big transition or in investing. And the second big piece was that evaluating an investment really starts with the people. And to him, the people are so much more important than anything else. In fact, he said, give me the B company with an A leadership team and I'll beat the A company with a B leadership team. So people are obviously paramount in his world. And then the last thing I would say is that this probably goes without saying, but I would reiterate his comment that when it comes to alternative investments, make sure you know what you own. Make sure you understand it because the intention of each alternative is different and you have to make sure that you understand how it functions under the hood. I look forward to bringing you the next episode very soon. For more from me, read my weekly column every Thursday on the SoFi blog or follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Liz Youngstrat. Tune in to the SoFi Daily podcast for five-minute daily episodes covering the top business, economic, and stock market news you need to start your day. The SoFi Daily pod is available on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to check out the SoFi Daily newsletter. You can sign up for the SoFi Daily to receive the latest financial news in your inbox every day. 
The important part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth LLC and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com legal.